0: Baby, you have to find the room number. This is your only chance of escaping this place. Find the room number before the hurricane passes. Mom. Or you will never leave. Okay, Team Spirit, are you ready? Am I ready for what? To be discharged. (laughs) Unless you want to stay. Uh, My name is Christopher Chapman. I am a filmmaker and I live in Florida. Uh, How did you get started in the film industry? Uh, Well, I was in. uh, that's kind of complicated. What's well, a good question, actually? Uh, because I started and I always wondered how most people get started in film. I think a lot of people maybe go to uh, cinematography school or or film school, something like that. But um, I actually I actually got started. Um, I went to law school, and so lawyers write, read, do a lot of reading and writing, and uh, lawyers do a lot of writing. And so you and I always like creative writing. I had written. Um, I'd always been writing, and I wrote something that has now been published. It was published a couple of years ago, a love story called The Accident. Um, no, what am I saying? That was a movie I did. A love story called The Picnic Table uh, that ended up – that's on Amazon and iBooks and other things. It's hard hard copy, and then you can get it in an electronic version. But anyway, it's a love story. Um, and so I – and then I had done um, – Uh, still photography for commercial print. Um, And so that would be, you know, some freelance for local magazines, um, things that ended up, um, you know, either going to shoot something maybe potentially boring like inside of a restaurant, all the way up to maybe like a club scene to say a model. Um, And at that point you got to, you know, for those that haven't really taken still photography too seriously, especially when working with a model, is you, you almost, you're really getting to direct them and and there's a big difference between someone that that doesn't know what they're doing from a modeling standpoint to a real true professional model and so they take direction better uh, and so so anyway you you take those two combine them together and lo and behold i decided one year uh, i had this uh, shorter story that i wanted to just make into um, a film and i just wanted to see if i could produce it and get the proper locations and things so um you know, i started building that um and and in that journey i ended up meeting uh, a kind of a team of people out in los angeles that uh, i ended up doing a couple shorts with and then we shot that movie that i was talking about that was called the accident and um so that's kind of how i got my 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 stepfather um worked for nbc during the initial mercury gemini well initial but mercury gemini and apollo program um and and he was so he got to work in that world with all the space race astronaut stuff so i got to kind of um through hand-me-down me me, uh i don't know uh, what do you paraphernalia for lack of a better term i got to uh kind of experience a little bit of that world uh through him and then um but he was always he was always toting around a big video camera, you know, back when you had to carry like the, the VHS backpack almost, and then you'd carry the camera itself. And uh, we we play around with that. I always thought that was cool. So I guess that's maybe the morphing of it. And how did you jump from one genre to to another, going from uh, comedy
1: to? Well,
0: so my first, I okay, uh, I like drama, right? So um, for me, that's how it was easier drama but but what happened really with with how that the jump occurred into horror or thrillers is uh brian nagel who i worked with on the accident he was the lead in the accident and i met you know brian i really like brian and through brian i met his brother tom and they were in pre-production or um, on clown town and so we had a couple meetings about that i was interested and and then. So I was working on Clowntown. I was actually in Clowntown, which is funny. But I uh, met Jeff Miller through Clowntown. Uh, we were on set and I met, well, I met Jeff before that, but we started working together on set. And he asked me one day, you know, have you ever thought about shooting a horror film? Me writing and directing. And uh, so that started um, for an operable. And he had given me some things that he was looking for. Um, he His head, you know, he's always got his feelers or, or his, Kind of hand on the pulse of horror and either through just his own intelligence uh distributors that he knows or whatever he kind of knows what what the the market's looking for i suppose and so he'll say hey look you know i want can you tell us a story about you know this issue this issue this issue this issue it, it, combine it together and and that's kind of like with Clowntown, it was he had done some research and found that creepy clowns were really big and he timed it just perfect. I mean, remember all those, after we had been done filming is when all that weird, remember that clown craze was going on, which is weird. And people were like dressed up as clowns and in the woods and scaring people. And so, um, and that was long before it, I mean, it had been written clearly in the eighties or whenever it was written, but before they shot it again. So. Um, but in on inoperable, so Jeff gave me, he, he certain things he was looking for. So was, let me try to take a stab at writing. And so I write in more, um, I don't really write in script format. I just write more in story format. So, uh, like novel. So I just started writing and sent it back and forth and tweaked it. And we had the script for inoperable at that point. So how did the script for inoperable come about? What was the basis for, or what was the inspiration? For well, his, you know, His, I think, I don't really remember exactly what his kind of initial thoughts were. I think it was more, he he had some some suggestions and I think, I don't remember the exact kind of spark that got the hospital part, but I do recall um, a decent part of it from my own perspective was... when I think it was 2004, uh, I was I had gotten food poisoning or bad food or something. Food poisoning makes it sound like you're poisoned, but it was just whatever the food was it was not good, and there's salmonella or whatever. I ended up in the hospital, and there was a, a tropical storm or hurricane down south, and um, I just my you know, imagination runs wild, uh, and you know, I thought it wouldn't be weird if you know the power went out in here, and there was like a serial killer on the loose and couldn't do anything. I mean, imagine being a patient. Um, and you can't, you know, you're either, yeah, you know, I don't know, just had heart surgery or, you know, your appendix is just, you're not going to get up and run around and fight off bad guys. So I felt that that was kind of a fun basis for it. So we kind of took the ball and ran with it, uh, in that regard. How was it like working with a uh, horror royalty like uh, Danielle Harris? <laughs> well, she was amazing. Like Danielle, I mean, you know, she was amazing, but you know, truth be told, I, I'm not, you know, when Jeff was... Jeff was starting to listen, you know, list people that he felt would be good to have on the film. You know, in other words, like he used the term like move the meter, move the needle. And, you know, you can think of it like a, you know, needle peeking on certain names. And so certain names might do this and certain names might, you know. And so he had some names and some names that everybody would recognize. And we had, um, he had made some calls and certain people were interested, but the timing was wrong. Um, for the for the time we were going to film it, um, and then certain people maybe they wanted more. I don't really know. You know, he he dealt with all. Jeff is a master in that. Jeff dealt with all that, but then, um, you know, he, I had certain people that that I thought were really great actors. That regardless of horror, just just actors I liked, and and Jeff was really dialed into the horror. So when he he mentioned Danielle Harris, and I knew who she was, but I didn't. You know i'm not a, i wasn't a horror fan kind of aficionado so uh but people around me like my wife knew exactly who she was and she's like oh yeah that's she started listing movies and i'm like oh that's where you know i i figured and then jeff was like well do you are you cool with that like, absolutely so jeff started talking to her her crew and um you know next thing we know um you know we she was amazing i mean really like you know and i feel like you know when people are interviewed directors or producers and they say oh he was incredible to work with or she was incredible to work with you know i don't know those producers or directors and i don't know who they work with so how do you know if that's true but i will say danielle harris i mean just knows this i mean just knows it better than i mean certainly better than i do so and she's a director as well um so she knew what did you know, maybe she didn't know necessarily Amy Barrett, or our character, and didn't necessarily know the, the, what we were actually trying to extract from this. Because uh, it was definitely confusing. Um, but from a, you know, so there was some direction required, I suppose. But really, I mean, I couldn't have imagined now, in retrospect, a better character to play that. I just couldn't imagine. And so now when I think Amy Barrett, it's clearly Daniel Harris. And so I think that happens maybe to... You know, audiences that are really dialed in, you know, like, you know, Pretty Woman is that, that, that woman is Julia Roberts. I mean, who could play Pretty Woman other than Julia Roberts? I mean, that's that, you know, so it's like that is Daniel Harris for me as Amy Barrett. So um, it was amazing, like, literally, like, very little. I just knew every newer line. I mean, it was just, I couldn't, you know, and I haven't worked with that level of, you know, kind of Hollywood. I mean, royalty, as it were, before. um, And I see why you want to work with people like that. You know, kind of like when I was using the model reference earlier, is there's a a model that I was working with a decent bit who now we're we're good friends. And and it was just, it's just when you have somebody that actually knows more of what you're looking for than you do or more of what the fans are looking for than maybe you do, you know, I didn't, with far as Daniel Harris goes, I mean... My directing hat was usually not. I mean, I didn't really need to wear it, so I'm not going to take credit for that. She's amazing, so yeah. You know. uh, how was the set chosen? Oh wow, that okay. That was a lot of work. Um, you came out the set, or 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 I should say, Mike came out to set. But we had we had. Uh, you were really uh, Mike. You were probably the only one that came out to set, right? I mean, I think you were the only actual. Yeah, non, either BTS photographer, but you were the only non-crew that, that came out. So um, we kept it pretty, well, there were some guests that came by, but it was pretty, you know, not hush hush, but we kept it pretty discreet. But, but basically, um, you know, we wrote it as a hospital, right? And so ideally what you'd think of is, I want a hospital to shoot in. And, but good luck with that, getting a functioning hospital. Like, where are you gonna get a functioning hospital and displace patients? Never mind HIPAA and all these other regulations. I mean, I don't know how you're going to do that. So, um, you know, we we started. I, I want necessarily. I, I like shooting in Tampa, but that wasn't the. It was the goal, but that wasn't so much of a goal that we were going to blow a budget or something to shoot here. So we were looking at, at um, locations all around the U.S. as it were. So uh, Jeff Miller had some locations in L.A. Um, and there are, there are locations that are more or less designed or designable for hospitals. And, um, you know, we looked at one in LA, it was expensive and we weren't real confident it was going to look, we were gonna have to spend a lot of time and effort in it. And um, it was just expensive again. And, you know, on these indie films, um, you know, it's one of the things that, that a lot of filmmakers understand, but, you know, viewers, you know, it's really tough to shoot a film on a low budget. It's very difficult. And, and, and oh, something's always going to be sacrificed. I mean, it just, it just has to be. And so, um, usually locations are, are one of the ways you you can save money and, and have these sacrifices. But uh, you know the the backup goal to not finding a fully functioning hospital was um, I had some relationships with with physicians that that either ran or owned little surgery centers. And, you know, a little surgery center if you're, if you're gonna have your you know your I don't know. Your, I don't know a bone. I mean, it's not anything where it's not major surgery. You go to these surgery centers. So little procedures, you know, things of that nature. And so, um, the goal was we were going to piece a few of these together. So what you would end up having is, in through post production, it would look like a seamless hospital. Or maybe you're in different wings if, you know, the hospital looked a little different. The surgery center looked a little different, which was totally fine because in a hospital you have different wings and they look different. So. That was what we were working towards and um, and it was gonna be fine. Um, but again, the problem there is these were still functioning surgery centers, so certain days they would have surgery, certain days they wouldn't, so we would have to be filming there the days they didn't have surgery going on, right. So when you shoot a film, you know two to three weeks of filming, those days you have to get really coordinated on on when you shoot those days and then if you're dealing with you know you know uh, your actors and they're in holding you know they're, they're here for four days you're paying them to be here it gets kind of you start blowing your budget pretty quickly so ultimately what happened is through some relationships that i had and then had built along the way uh we found this location um, in pasco county uh in dade city uh, which is a small city north of tampa west of say Orlando. Um, and it was, at one point been a functioning hospital, very small, but at one point it had been a functioning hospital. For its day it was probably a big size, but at one point it had been a functioning hospital. It turned in I think a, a county administ- administrative building then turned into a sheriff's office station. And then I think was then abandoned. Abandoned makes it sound strange, but not no longer being used. It was slated to be tore down um, and we were lucky enough to get in there. And, but when you're in the, in this location, the really all it was was walls, you know, a ceiling, electrical, power, so power water, uh, maybe, no, not even water, I don't think, but anyway, power and, you know, some carpets, something. So everything else you see though, in this hospital, you know, we had to design in. So now you'd see some tile, I mean, that was there, but, you know, computer equipment, hospital equipment, everything i mean we that was set design so that was bobby marinelli kate Emery, um and he bobby um, and kate headed, kate was more pre-pro but bobby ran set design so that was bobby marinelli to make it look and i've had some of the best compliments because and it might have been one of your articles if i remember correctly. i'm not really sure but some, certainly some articles were written where they said god where do they find this hospital that was already well that was a huge compliment to production design because that hus- there wasn't anything in it. So everything you, you, everything everybody sees was designed that way. And because the movie is a bit of a, a timeline fiasco, right, uh, or um, intentionally confusing on timelines, we threw different items in there from different timelines, different, you know, so the computer monitors might've been from the late 90s. There might be a flat screen TV from, you know, 2015. Uh, you know, it might be a cell phone from 96 or 2001 or whatever, right? And so we threw in, you know, there's a car from the 70s and there's other cars from modern modern times. So we, we we kind of, you know, intentionally stirred up uh, the timelines. And with that, we designed items to look like they're from different times. So it's supposed to look like a hodgepodge kind of, that makes sense. You know, if you think of it, you're like a time traveler and you have artifacts in your house. You're not just going to have... If you like cameras, you're not just going to have cameras from 2017. You're going to have it might have a, the first camera ever made. You might have you know this weird camera from 2000 you know 2087 that we've never seen before. So it's kind of like that in in Auburn so. uh, Can you tell us something about uh, the crew that you worked with? Yeah, So uh, starting with me, you know, but going down from there, the assistant director Ashley Eberbach, filmmaker. Uh, she does commercial projects. Um, we've we've done now one two three I think inoperable is our fourth or fourth project that we did together and she's a brilliant filmmaker director
1: um, you know
0: she's the ad she just go-to person I just love working with her and then you know cinematography or the director of photography Giorgio David we'd work with on a couple of projects before that and Giorgio um, what I do right so I, I think of it as a department head so you have ad and you have a cinematographer and he runs lighting and all that and then you have um, uh, Bobby Marinelli, right, and then you know uh, costume and, and special effects makeup and things, but but anyway, Bobby, or sorry, so Giorgio. What I like, I think the reason Giorgio and I tend to work well together is because I kind of let him take the ball and run with it, and I, I tell him generally what we're trying to accomplish from a film standpoint and from a story standpoint, but then I just kind of let him do it. I mean, he's the one that is lighting for it, and he's the one shooting it, you know, so. A lot of the times he's blocking. Um, I mean, I'm still directing from an acting standpoint and general storyline standpoint. There's a feel we're going through. But George, you and I spend so much time leading up to production that by the time we're there, we don't really spend... We're not really communicating too much. It's I'm sitting behind the director monitor and if it looked good for camera and it looked good for acting and it looked, and it sounded good for sound, then we move on. Um, especially with Inoperable because it was pretty fast-paced. We, had a, we, we didn't have... These problem with these lower budget films is you just don't have enough time to sit there and spend all day in one scene and making sure that actor is just spot on. Sometimes you got to kind of move on, and it and it's annoying. Um, and you know, so that's the problem with lower budget films. You just don't have enough time because you think per day. I mean, I don't know what the budget, but I'm just making up a number. I mean, you might be spending eight grand a day, right? So Think about it. If, if you're just not getting something right, oh, we're just gonna shoot another day. I mean, not to mention, you room and board these people from LA or from New York or wherever they're from, from you know, and you got the location. I and mean, you got to re, re recontract with them. Maybe the weather's not right. So, um, but Giorgio is great. Cause he just, he just, we would take some, I let him take big camera risks. So when you see it, and some of the people hopefully had saw it in the theaters by the time they watch this, maybe it, it should be out in February. Um, you know, in VOD and whatnot, but um, it's just a lot of camera movement, and there's a lot of long shots, oners, um, That you know, I love it when people, you know, kind of, especially you, you know, or you know, your your viewers, or take special note of that was one take. You know, and the skill needed from camera and acting to get the one take in. I mean, you definitely have it's like watching maybe a Super Bowl, I suppose, and you know, people are cheering when it actually goes right. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, but um, no, the, the people were, man. Bobby Marinelli, I mean, he and I work together on all sorts of things. Uh, we've got a project we're about to shoot in about two weeks, um, another local project core. And um, so, yeah, but I just have a great, a great, I mean, it's all about your team. I mean, I'm not really, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, I kind of put the project together um, with, you know, but it's the team that does it. I mean, I really don't. I'm directing it, but it's been so well planned by the time we're actually sitting there that other than pulling my hair out um, because you can't fight time, um, it goes pretty smooth. So what was your favorite scene to film? Okay, there's a couple, right? My, my favorite my favorite scene from just a coolness factor is on one of we call them resets, I don't know really. You know, it's reset for her is when, for Amy is when, she kind of passes out in the hospital because remember she's been in a car wreck and who knows what's been done to her, right? So, she passes out. She wakes back up in her car, and then she has a couple seconds or or minute, to, to, to and then boom, she she wakes back up in her hospital. So that's like a cycle. We call it like almost like a reset. And uh, my favorite is towards the end where there was a reset where she's just kind of mad and she's done with the BS of this hospital. And it's a long shot where, where we see her in the hospital bed, and then we, we shift the camera to the right, and we're basically, we're not, we don't break, uh, there's no, we're not cutting away. And we just spin the camera, and then you see her walking out a hallway. She goes and picks up a syringe and jams it into uh, one of the nurse's hearts, the nurse collapses, and then she throws the, the syringe and then walks off. So that was one big uh, long shot. And it just looks awesome because she gets dressed in the same shot. And so you don't break from this. So we do a lot of those. And uh, that one was just it was just a cool feeling because, you know, the audience is, is, is feeling a little claustrophobic and maybe feeling a little, um, de- not depressed, but a little longing for a little fight back. And, and Amy starts to give it to them. And, um, I really like that scene because it shows the transition more from confused victim to badass. And, um, because that's really the story of Amy. I mean, she starts to just confuse who, who knows what's going on. And in the end, she's just kind of basically a badass. And, um, uh, that was my, I think that was my favorite scene to film. We, we filmed that towards the end. And I just remember the, the joy in the crew when we got it right. Um, and, um, and then I think the funniest scene that I, I like the banter between uh, Jen and Ryan. Ryan's the cop, and Jen's the, uh, the the attractive girl in the blue dress. And and that's Katie Keene and uh, Jeff Denton. And the ba- they already knew each other because we worked together in Clowntown. And the banter between them, the two of them, was really funny because they would go off script. And when they're sitting in the hospital waiting room, you hear them kind of like it's just kind of fun and. Um, it wasn't my favorite it was just fun to listen to because you'd be sitting behind the director monitor and you hear them just talking i was like i hope we're rolling for that this is really good and then uh, but i think my, i think my other favorite scene was it's disturbing but it's the one where katie or jen is laying on the like ob gyn table and they're, they're in theory doing an abortion but she's not pregnant. And she's screaming, I'm not pregnant, I'm not pregnant. And when in, there was a director monitors, it was me and the script supervisor, Lauren Coconato. And then behind us was like, you know, hair and makeup, wardrobe, and it was basically all females. And I remember, you know, I'm deep in concentration watching this and, you know, have my reading glasses on and I'm really watching it. And Laura and I are really, you know, and um, when it's done, you could hear Katie screaming down the hallway. Because we're probably, I don't know, fifty yards away, and you can hear her screaming. So you're hearing it here, and you're hearing her screaming. And I turn around, and just kind of like, and all the girls are like, "You're sick. You're so sick." Like, kind of funny. Like, you're that mm-hmm. I'm like, well. Wow. I mean, that that was the reaction kind of I wanted. And so, uh, but those are yeah, those are. I think that. But if you said if you said well actually, there's another one that I should sorry that you should really look out for, and it has a really creepy feel to it, and it just it just looked right, and that was Georgie and I really connecting, and there's a scene where, like most, Amy, our, our our hero, is running from the act. She's running away, and you're seeing her shoot down some hallways. Well, she ends up going down a long hallway, and you see the doctor, male doctor, slowly walking methodically towards the camera and towards Amy, and then you see the orderly running. So it's this weird, like, it just has a weird look to it. And, um, you know, we. We, we had some fun with this and we wanted to make it feel a little third-person shooter, kind of not really shooter, but we are almost like it has a little bit of a video game feel to where you're kind of moving around with Annie, like you're her, you're her buddy or your, you know, whatever, sidekick. And um, Matt wouldn't certainly have that feeling. Can you tell us something some about the dismembered cow? Oh, uh, okay. I didn't know any of, Yeah, you were there that day. I didn't know any of that. This one was so funny. I'm, I remember... All I remember is Bobby showing up with, a, with some ca, a cow parts. And, but like most things, the way I treated that is they were like kind of department heads. It's almost like they work for the film company and not really me. You know, whereas Phil was, Phil was the unit production manager. And he, it was almost like he kind of, you gotta like set up, you gotta kind of like section everything out. So you, you, there's a point where you don't really know what they're doing. And you just – so, yeah, but, uh, but, but basically this, the cow stuff shows up and um, what is this, you know, and, and okay, go ahead and whatever, I guess. And so Bobby throws it in there and, and I like stuff a little more subtle, but Jeff Miller's like, let's let's get it out there. So Jeff kind of went in there and played with it and then uh, – but it, it smelled pretty bad. It was uh, – when you hear – people were gagging like, like I was in another, I mean, you could smell it down the hallway where I was, but people were, it was not good. It, it stunk. But what the cool thing is, I guess where it was, was in a drainable location. Um, and they cleaned it out pretty well. Like I think then an hour later, it was just smelled like bleach. And, um, I don't think any of it, none of it actually went down cause it wasn't actually liquid blood. It was just bloody looking. And then, uh, And then the stuff disappeared, and that was the end of it. So, uh, for me anyway, so I don't know. (laughs) But it was gross. It was definitely, it was real, real stuff. But apparently that's kind of like not uncommon on some horror sets, I think. Um, I don't know. I mean, that was crazy to me, but I'm not so sure how uncommon that is in retrospect. Um, I mean, lower budget, I guess you go to a butcher and grab some stuff. Why not? I suppose it looks real. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, but, you know, I wish I knew more about that. That's, uh, it just kind of showed up and I heard stories of how disgusting it was and transporting it apparently was not the most entertaining. And uh, um, Bobby had enlisted uh, Michelle Beebs who uh, uh helped him with that, and a couple other people. So, you know, that's all I know about that, unfortunately. So that was a better story if I knew more, but... Uh, after you saw the final product, was there anything that you wanted to change? Uh, well, I was part of the editing, you know, I was part of it the, the whole time. So, um, you know, I, I was out in California with with, uh, with editing. And yeah, I mean, I would say, yeah, there were some, I mean, we, we it was very true to script. Like, uh, you know, it wasn't in post, it wasn't like we did anything different. Um, we we utilize some shots where she's looking, I believe, where she's looking at her watch, where we, where we intentionally uh, use the same shot, even though we had other coverage. Um, yeah, there's a couple things that I, looking back, I I wish I would have, wish I would have changed, but um, I mean I think there always, you know, will be. Um, but you know the sound was very clean. We had an ADR, uh, we had an ADR uh, a little bit. Um, um, but yeah, cause like some of the outside shots, it was just too noisy. Um, there was like a school up the road and you'd hear school buses going by an airplane be flying overhead. And it was weird. There was like a cell phone tower, some sort of radio tower. And depending on where you were, you would, your cell signal was bad, but we didn't really care about that. It was more your focus, your remote focus pulling, you'd lose data. So that was annoying so you had to get video you had to get the monitor real close but then it was real bright out or real hazy so you couldn't really see um there's just problems you have to work through uh but yeah as far as what what you know if i had to change some things um maybe had a few more takes on certain certain scenes um but i mean overall for the money and for the you know i mean we got what almost 18 and a half million, or more now, 18 and a half million views on our trailer alone, on our channel alone. I mean, somebody likes it, I guess, or somebody really hates it, but 18 and a half million, I'm sure some of that's gonna to translate to people renting it, right? I would hope. So uh, yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it overall it's to it turn out pretty well. I mean, uh, but I think there's always stuff, you know, you would change. I mean, I, uh, I, I just, you know, my brain, when I think of production and what I want it to look like, it's never going to look as good as it does in my head. It just never. It's maybe half of half as good. But then again, you pick up some things that you never would have thought about, you know, through great having great team members. So like cinematography and picking up stuff you, and production design you never would have thought about. So, so I would say overall, yeah, I mean, maybe as happy as you can be. I mean, I'm not, I'm not the, I'm not real impressed with myself. So I, I try to be, you know, hard on myself to where When I do something again, I I learn from mistakes that maybe other people don't think I made, but that I certainly see. So, um, when will an opera will be available, and when where can people find it? Well, yeah, it had a theater run, a theatrical run um, that was in December, Uh, but now I'm being told I think it's like the second week of February, and I think they usually release on Tuesdays. I want to say so it's going to be. I should know more about this, but it's like the, the I think it's the second Tuesday in February, but. What I'm being told uh, is VOD, Walmart, um, and I th- I don't know if Redbox is, has confirmed, um, certainly overseas, and I think there's some other, um, there is a certain um, service everybody's heard about uh, yet that has not been confirmed yet, so I don't wanna use it, but if that happens, that's really cool.